Hello and welcome to another episode of Saved by the 90s. I'm your host, Adam Patterson. I'm joined today by the family-friendly Ken Bakley. Hey, Ken. Hey. <laughs> I like that. It, was, it sounded very timid. You're just like, hey. Well, you said hey, so I said hey. Oh, right. Fair enough. We're also joined today, this month by Film Pulse contributor Mint Marcellus. Welcome, Mint. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. November is my birthday month, but it's... Since I'm old and born in the 80s, we'll be celebrating Mint's birthday by taking a look back at November 1996. Hey, Fox Kids, I'm Sinbad, and let me tell you what's up, okay? Check this out. This Saturday's gonna be really bad. Sinbad it is, because I'm gonna be hosting a whole morning of all new episodes of all your favorite Fox Kids shows. This is gonna be large. I mean, extra large. I mean, you I'm talking about big and tall signs only. Sorry, man. I got so excited, I didn't want you to miss out. So be sure you're here with me, Sinbad, for a megathon of all new fun Sinbad Saturdays this Saturday, all morning long, here on Fox Kids. As ubiquitous as kids' movies were during the 90s, there were just as many family films, movies with wholesome themes skewing to a younger audience, but designed to appeal to a wider age group. November brought a myriad of family films to audiences. Some some became cult classics and others not so much. Our first film this month is firmly planted in the latter category, featuring Bill Murray, Matthew McConaughey, and an orphan circus elephant released November 1st. This is Larger Than Life. Good morning, Mr. Murray. Oh, no. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, I don't want it, is to transport an elephant. Elephant? Across the country. Excuse us, please. We're trying to make a play. No matter what it takes. I can't drive this. Good luck, Bill. Larger Than Life, rated PG, starts Friday. In Larger Than Life, a motivational speaker discovers that the inheritance his circus clown father left him is in the form of an elephant. Mint, as our guest, uh, let's. why don't you go first? Uh, what did you think of Larger Than Life? So I watched it yesterday, and the only thing I can remember about it is Matthew McConaughey's performance. Mm-hmm. What a performance to remember. <laughs> it's I can't I, I want to know what the pitch was to him. Did he audition for this? Was like was this a passion project? Because it's so wonderfully bad. Yeah, it it absolutely is. Uh I, the, the the funny thing about the one of the main things that I remember with his performance was the mention or the description of the, as he put it, the what do you say? Pig pecker? <laughs> I don't know if that's a, if that's appropriate to say on this show or not. I think I think that's PG-13 enough, yeah, right? I mean, the movie itself is like PG. But it's such a random thing that he says. And it's such a random character because it it's like the it's like the villain, right? It's like he's like the antagonist of the movie, but he's so He's in it for such a short amount of time, but then he comes back and did like, oh my God, this movie is yeah. so bad. Yeah, we should back up and say uh, in this movie, Bill Murray's character has to like take this elephant across the country. Uh, and one of the people he meets along the way is Matthew McConaughey's character is this like sort of eccentric, hickish kind of super paranoid conspiracy theorist. Yeah, he's and- a truck driver all amped up on like trucker pills like like caffeine pills and stuff so he's 
Very high energy. Very high energy. Oh boy. Is he ever. (laughs) So Bill Murray stars as a motivational speaker. And the film begins with him doing one of his shows, one of his like conferences or whatever. And it starts with this incredibly inappropriate human pyramid that he designs. And it, and it looks like the actors that are in that role are very uncomfortable doing what he is asking this movie, them to do. This movie made me feel bad from roughly yeah, minute one. <laughs> it's just... Like the like the women that were being forced into this human pyramid seemed incredibly uncomfortable with the whole situation. And I don't know if they were acting or if they were really that uncomfortable being forced to do this or not, but it was a very cringeworthy moment to start the film with. I think they were sincerely uncomfortable because if you just play it on the surface value of the scene, everybody's kind of getting into what he's doing by then. But that's not conveyed at all through the actors who appear to be sincerely upset that essentially what happens is Bill Murray forces them all into a human pyramid while saying incredibly (laughs) inappropriate things. Uh, It's amazing. (laughs) yeah it's it's also one of the most weirdly paced movies i think i've ever seen because the villain doesn't get introduced until well what feels like halfway through the movie but it's actually a little before that because this movie is incredibly slow and there's all of this stuff between bill murray and the executor of the will that's i think supposed to be funny but isn't at all Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, this movie is 27 hours long. Uh, mm-hmm. It is in real time. It's through tracks his entire week traversing the country. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's so it's supposed to be this kind of fun road trip romp. You know, you have Bill Murray and an elephant. What could go wrong there, right? Well, the thing, the problem is it, it is incredibly unfunny. Like, it just, the, the humor... It's very lacking. I mean, it's not just that there's a lot of jokes and they don't land. It's that it's pretty much devoid of a lot of jokes. Like, they're just not. I think the funniest scene for me was the scene when uh, Bill Murray went to talk to the, I guess it was a petting zoo guy, if I remember correctly. And again, I forget most of what happened in this movie. (laughs) And a bird lands on his head. And (laughs) that one scene made me laugh. And. That was the only, I think that was the only time I laughed in this movie because his just deadpan response with, is that yours? Could could you get it off of me, please? <laughs> and just the weird looking bird that landed on his head. I didn't laugh when it happened, but I did enjoy your delivery and recalling of this joke more than I enjoyed its <laughs> yeah. appearance the in the film. Joke. I never even heard of this movie. So we, we actually were going to have... Ryan watched this for an episode of Ryan watches a movie that we never actually did. He watched the movie, but then he got uh, sick or something and, and we didn't end up recording the show. So he was forced to watch this movie and we didn't even get a show. out of it. <laughs> and uh, that was the first time when I was looking for elephant movies that I found this. And I, yeah, I never even heard of this before that. Yeah. There's, really nothing for people to remember about this movie anyway because like you said there's no 
really famous jokes or even particularly elaborate scenes in it. There's maybe no single memorable factor other than the log line and maybe Matthew McConaughey's performance, but otherwise this movie is just a very thin vapor, but also <laughs> one that goes on for about a week. Yeah, it is a slog. I mean, it's it's only an hour and 33 minutes long. Allegedly. But it, yeah, it feels like it is a slog. I watched this on, I think it was like a Saturday afternoon or something last week, and I was just like, what is going on here? What is happening? This movie just keeps going and going and going. And you have these like weird relationships with the, the female characters. You have... um Janine Garofalo and the other actress is escaping me right now. I can't think of who the, the commercial director is. Uh, And of course the IMDb cast listing is all mixed up. So I can't remember her name, but you have these characters who Uh, I don't know if they were. Yeah, that's it. Yes. Linda Fiorentino. I don't know if they were trying to set up some sort of, love interest with these characters i couldn't really tell if that was the case or not but either way that didn't particularly work either there's really yeah there's really nothing in this movie that works because nothing is given any weight at all uh because there's it's just all built on this presumption that the notion that bill murray's going around the country with an elephant is enough to keep us in for an entire runtime, but it really isn't. So everything just keeps happening, but it's all very lightly dusted over the main concept. But the main concept is really not that interesting. Yeah. Well, when I think about movies like this, I think of, it reminds me of like Joe dirt (laughs) and where, where you have this cross country road trip and you think, oh, he's going to be meeting lots of colorful characters and the elephant's going to be get into all these like shenanigans and it's going to be just a fun romp. But it really, it really isn't that at all. Like they don't really do a lot of cool stuff with the elephant. I would say that the elephant's probably the best part of the movie. It was a great elephant, a lot of personality, and the elephant seemed very smart. An excellent but, elephant performance. Yeah. I mean, top notch elephant performance, but they don't really do a lot with the colorful characters. There's, there's really not that many McConaughey's pretty much the only one. You have some other people here and there, but yeah, there's one scene that I think kind of demonstrates how weird this movie or weirdly this movie treats the elephant, which is when the Keith David shows up as a conductor of a train, right? Mm -hmm. And he doesn't interact with the elephant at all. Like that whole scene, which is actually kind of funny. I I think I remember laughing during that scene when he's trying to, you know, get Jack to give him a bunch of money. I I remember laughing, but there's no interaction with the elephant. It's and there seems like there could be so much that you could do there. The whole scene is predicated on the notion that the conductor can be bribed in order to uh, allow the elephant to travel on the train to the next destination. But like you said, the entire scene plays out without the elephant. The elephant is effectively treated as 
a hypothetical object. Like, (laughs) (laughs) the elephant doesn't exist. The elephant in the room is that there is no elephant in the room for most of this movie. (laughs) That's that's a good description. So I'm like, I want to see this elephant. I want to see this elephant do stuff. But the whole movie is just about how, isn't it weird that Bill Murray has to deal with this elephant? And I'm like, where's the elephant? <laughs> oh, yes. The elephant is... is an unseen character for a sizable chunk of this movie. Yeah. Because he's always like in <laughs> train cars or in the back of a, you know, tra- a, a trailer or something. He's never... hanging out in the junkyard that was another weird scene like all of the side characters in this movie are just bizarre and don't make any sense it's a very messy film have you guys seen operation dumbo drop (laughs) no (laughs) no what is that (laughs) oh no come on uh it was another it was another elephant movie it came out in 95 and it was with Danny Glover and Ray Liotta, and it was about delivering an elephant. It was like a bunch of military people deliver, delivering an elephant, dropping an elephant into <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> I can't remember, but it reminds me of, like, I guess it, during this time, there was a lot of elephant popularity going on since you had these elephant movies back to back. And in fact, going back to that Ryan Watches a Movie episode, Kevin suggested larger than life and oh no, sorry. He goes, he suggested operation Dumbo drop thinking that it was larger <laughs> than life. So right. So not only did Ryan watch larger than life, but he also watched operation Dumbo drop as well. And then we still never did an episode for whatever it's worth. The elephant in larger than life is also the elephant in operation Dumbo Drop. <laughs> of course ah nice she was she was really cornering all those elephant parts in the 90s she was also in the 94 jungle book the george of the jungle which is a classic looney tunes back in action wow that's that's a hell of a career you think she was able to get uh a percentage points of the gross written into her contract hmm that's a good question the el- the elephant was headlining some features so i think i think she could have gotten a good agent for that i think there's a good article to be written about you know elephant compensation uh all right any final thoughts on larger than life ken uh i well no uh no i don't have anything to say about this movie in the first place as evidenced by the fact that most of what i said just now was uh jokes about the elephant's uh compensation there's really not much to say about this movie it is predicated on an assumption that it does not follow through on it which is that we're going to get a lot of elephant shenanigans and all it is is people just talking about the elephant and it's roughly it's an hour and a half of people trying to discuss how they're going to transport an elephant across the country it it feels almost unintentionally existential sometimes (laughs) well it is in a lot of ways right it's like bill murray is at a crossroads in Mm -hmm. his life he has this fiance who they clearly have some sort of rift between them and the elephant you know represents his current station in life it's it's a very deep yeah. movie if you think about it. Larger than elephant life. is 
is a metaphor. The elephant is the the elephant. The real elephant was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> I think that wraps it up. That's that, that's a good ending note. I think the fun won't stop. So stay tuned. We'll be back after this message. Ted Danson traveled the world to solve a mystery. It's out there. I know it is. What he found was the key to his heart. <laughs> a love story that will make you believe. I've waited my entire life for this. Loch Ness, ABC Saturday. <laughs> my Why aren't God. we watching that film? <laughs> oh, we have, we have to, we have to review Loch Ness on this show at some point. Our next film, while not well-received by critics, would go on to achieve cult status years later, for some reason. Combining Warner Brothers animation with the unstoppable popularity of Michael Jordan, released on November 15th, this is Space Jam. Michael Jordan, Bugs Bunny, they've teamed up to save the world. Now, Michael's gonna reach new heights, and Bugs is gonna fall for a lucky lady named Lola. Space Jam, rated PG, starts Friday, November 15th. In a desperate attempt to win a basketball match and earn their freedom, the Looney Tunes seek the aid of retired basketball champion Michael Jordan. Ken, what did you think of Space Jam? It feels like this is a movie that really doesn't need any kind of like build up or introduction because the notion of it and the amount of just fall up and nostalgia that surrounds it almost speaks for itself because it's, I mean, you look at the poster, the poster is Bugs Bunny and Michael Jordan with that, like above the title billing, which really is all you need to know about it. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, Bill Murray's in this too. So you have the, the, the Bill Murray connection there to larger than life, but that's uh that's that's pretty much how it is. I've never seen Space Jam in its entirety. I've seen bits and pieces of it over the years. Never appealed to me. I was 12 years old when this movie came out and I remember I had no interest in seeing it back when it came out. And the R Kelly song, the I believe I can fly song, which first of all does not fit in this movie at all. Like when they play it in the actual movie, it's it doesn't the first fit. thing you hear, and it makes just, no sense. You're just like, why is this in this movie? This does not work. And the the song was such a huge hit; it just played nonstop on the radio, on MTV. It just played over and over and over again, and it drove me crazy. And I think that maybe the song was what made me have a bad taste in my mouth about this movie from the get-go. So I never saw it when I was younger and I, I had no interest. And now that I have seen it, I can say it is, it is, uh, it's pretty bad. I don't understand why this movie developed this cult following. I think maybe it's because the people that were really young when this came out are older now and looking back at it with some like, nostalgia goggles or something so so am i gonna have to be the one defending this movie is that is that what i'm hearing yeah i think so i think so good to know i mean what what is it man if you if you enjoy space jam i genuinely want to know what what it is about this movie that you can watch 
and enjoy. Okay, so there there's a few things. Part of it is obviously the nostalgia. There's no way to separate that out because like both this and Looney Tunes back in action are like pristine memories for me as a as a child with the Looney Tunes. So there is that. But part of what I think makes this movie so like fantastic in my my memory and watching it yesterday it just confirmed it is just how ridiculous the premise is and how straight they play the premise. So the premise is Michael Jack, Michael Jordan, not Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan has retired from the NBA. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Uh, Michael Jordan has retired from the NBA and he is about to, he, he is starting a baseball career, but he sucks at baseball. Aliens from a cartoon planet where there's a theme park are, are losing revenue. And so they come to, to earth to go to Toontown to kidnap the Looney Tunes, the Looney Tunes guys are like, we challenge you to a game of basketball. The aliens go and steal the talent of five basketball players, none of whom I can remember the names of. And so they become big hulking monsters. And so the Looney Tunes go get Michael Jordan to help them. And so Michael Jordan remembers that he loves basketball and teaches the Looney Tunes that they can they can do it. They don't need whatever the the special drink mix thing that was just water was in the locker room. And you see, like as I continue describing it, it just keeps getting weirder and weirder. And there's <laughs> something so wonderfully surreal about that to me. There's something that just like it does. It doesn't make any sense. But there's this amazing scene when Michael Jordan's kids are watching TV, where I think it's Elmer Fudd, Porky Pig, and uh wily coyote they're watching them on on the tv and they're just like wait there's a there's a meeting and so the three of them run off but the tv is still playing the looney tunes episode Mm -hmm. and the movie does not care at all about explaining how that works (laughs) Are, are there millions of tv screens across the world that have now just gone dead with this you know static (laughs) shot is does this happen every time there's a problem? Do they just keep like coming out like it's a variety show doing the exact same skits over and over and over again? <laughs> it's it's the absurdity of it all and the fact that they play it all with such a straight face. Like there, there are some jokes in this movie that are supposed to be meant for adults. None of them are funny, which means there are <laughs> long periods of this movie where they're joking towards adults. But no adult would find it funny, and so the kids are must just be sitting there like, "What?" <laughs> like, I, yeah, that's that's my defense of Space Jam is that it it's so weird and it's such a terrible like industrial cash grab and excuse for Michael Jordan to get back in the NBA that I can't help but have some fondness for them. They 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 went for it. You can't deny that they just they threw it all at the wall. Okay. All right. I can I can see where you're coming from. I, I, I actually that was a good defense of it. I, I think the epitome of what you're saying about playing it straight comes when Michael Jordan first winds up in Looney Tunes land and it takes him and them all of about 30 seconds to just accept that it's happened. Like there's that one scene where everybody's like, "Hey, Michael Jordan's here," and Michael Jordan's like, "Why is Bugs Bunny standing in front of me?" And then the next scene is, "Okay, so here's what's happening." 
let's let's play some basketball. I love I love the scene when before the big game. So just to reiterate, this this game is to determine if the Looney Tunes are going to be enslaved by this alien race. So there's a lot at stake here. And before the big game, Bugs goes, guys, let's just get out there and have a good time. <laughs> and it's like, no, you you don't want to just have a good time. You want to play like your life depended on it. Well, and this is this is where I think there's another like layer of craziness. Cause so at one point, I think it's uh it's Donald Duck in the Looney Tunes, right? It's yeah, du- no, it's Daffy. No, it's okay. No, it's Daffy. So Daffy, Daffy and Daffy Bugs Duck. have gone up to Michael Jordan's house to get his lucky pair of shorts. And at one point, Daffy says, like, it's too bad this wasn't a union job or something. And I'm like, wait, wait. Mm-hmm. So are again, it comes back to the whole, are they just playing the same scenes over and over again? Are they not kind of enslaved in this world right now? Like, I wonder if part of why they are willing to be so cavalier about being enslaved by aliens is that they're already kind of living in this existential hell where they have to just keep <laughs> repeating things over and over again. <laughs> Just between the the implications of like the socioeconomics of Looney Tunes Land and the existence of this movie as a merchandising tool in the first place, this is this is late capitalism. Yeah, I mean, when you look at what this movie is all about, Michael Jordan did retire from the NBA. He did become a minor league baseball player, and around this time, he did come back to basketball and he came out of retirement and started playing basketball again so in a lot of ways this really is just a giant michael jordan ad and if you look at the the ripple effects that this movie caused if you look at the urban looney tunes movement like this that can be traced back to this like this is what sort of started that whole urban looney tunes thing where they started licensing out the 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 Looney Tunes property to all of these like urban wear companies. And it's created this whole giant thing that happened as a result of this absolutely absurd movie. And Space Jam as a concept started as an ad, didn't it? Like I'm trying to remember what the advertisement was for, but it was, there, there was an ad in like 1993 or something that they started it. Yeah, it could it could be. It probably. When I was searching for commercials for this month. Now, if you're not aware, I actually use commercials from the specific month and year in every episode. Like I I find ones that were playing during that time. I don't just grab random 90s commercials and as I was researching commercials, I found no fewer than 5 different commercials that featured Michael Jordan in some capacity. He was so huge during this time. I mean, it was like the height of Michael Jordan, which is crazy because when you look at his career, he started playing basketball in like 1988 or something. And it was just insane. So yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if space jam started. Yeah, as, it was, it was an, an, ad, an ad for uh, Nike's air Jordan sevens. Just looking it up, it, that, that's what it started <laughs> as. And then they were like, let's make a movie out of this. 
uh, one thing we haven't talked about yet is uh, Lola Bunny, our new addition to the yeah. Tunes roster. She didn't last, did she? I mean, I, I don't recall seeing her ever again. I could be wrong. I don't, I don't, I don't, I never saw Looney Tunes back in action, so I don't know if she's in that, but it feels like, like that, like that entire introduction of the character feels like the animation version of when they adapt a, a musical into a movie and then add another song so it can get a best original song nomination <laughs> at the Oscars. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it was very odd. Like she just comes in, like nobody has seen her before. Everybody knows everybody in the in this world, this cartoon world, and all of a sudden this new mysterious person comes in. She's a basketball pro right out right out of the gate and then she her and Bugs fall in love, but it's like the most surface level love story that like the character itself is she's so poorly developed. Like she just appears and then everybody knows her and then that's it. Lola Bunny is the suddenly of space jam. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Like Lola Bunny. There's so much about her. I just looked it up. She was not in back in action, which she she's appeared in some of the like late, uh bugs bunny cartoons like more recent ones but that's that's kind of it and so during the the big basketball game between the monsters and the looney tunes the whole stadium is filled with other looney tunes characters right mm-hmm. so yep. where does Lola, is that where lola bunny would have been had she not you know joined the team is that is that the insinuation that she's just like this other part of this giant seeming Looney Tunes world with characters that you've never heard of that they can just bring in random people when they need, you know, a sex symbol. That's the offspring of Roger Rabbit and Jessica Rabbit. Right. That's kind of what we got there. I, yeah, yeah. It was, it was kind of creepy to be honest with you. Like the, the way that she acted, felt very creepy and the the love story between her and bugs was also made me feel uneasy i feel like there's a dark section of 4chan dedicated to lola bunny i i'm 100 percent absolutely (laughs) there's no doubt there is absolutely no doubt i do i do not want to fall into that so i did not want to learn anything about anything more about the uh reception of lola bunny because i knew that it was going to take years off my life finding out what the internet <laughs> did with that character. One thing that bothered me about this movie is that the the voices of the Looney Tunes seemed way off to me. And maybe that's because I'm more used to the original voices. And to me, these voices seemed like not even close to what those characters should sound like. I don't know if you guys felt that yeah. not maybe, maybe not growing up with the original yeah. cartoons. I wasn't, I'm not all, I wasn't all too familiarized with Looney Tunes growing up, but I definitely get what you're saying. There's nothing about this interpretation of Looney Tunes characters that feels organic or origin uh, or like responsive to the original in any way. Uh, it it really does feel like almost an attempted 
reboot of the entire franchise, even though it ostensibly wasn't meant to be. It feels like a dramatic effort was taken to take the whole thing in a different direction. And I didn't think that the characters looked particularly good either. Like I didn't like comparing this to something like Roger Rabbit, who framed Roger Rabbit, the quality of the animation, I feel is there's nowhere. They're not even close to the quality of who framed Roger Rabbit, both on just an animation level and like a technical level too. I was imagining this movie being closer to who framed Roger Rabbit because you have the mix of 2d you know, hand-drawn animation with the live action, but it, uh, most of the, it's not like it's cartoon characters in a real world. It's Michael Jordan and Newman from Seinfeld and Bill Murray in a cartoon world. So everything feels very green screened and not, not like they're really in the same world. Oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. There's, there's that moment where the monsters like turn Michael Jordan into a basketball. Like, <laughs> oh God, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> it's so oh. awful looking. It's, it's just unbelievable that they h- how bad the 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 animation for that was, and and for the whole movie. No, you're totally right, Adam. That the animation is not good. Which is funny because Roger Rabbit came out what like many years. Before that, when did that come out? Like 80, early, like nine, 80, 89, 80, so, something like that. Anyway, it was a long time before that. And that 88. So that looks, that looks amazing to this day that that holds oh, yeah. up. And there were Looney Tunes characters in Roger Rabbit too. And it just, yeah, this, this just did not age well. Like that one did. I would, I would say that this is more like cool world. I don't know if you guys are familiar with cool world is is more akin to space jam i've never heard of this movie yeah cool world oh man it's a must watch i'm googling it right now because i need to know what on earth you are talking about cool Cool world World. i'm sure that i'm sure that we'll be covering it on this show at some point but cool world i used to when i was a kid i loved cool world i rewatched it years later and i was just like oh my god this is Horrendous. The tagline is Hollywood if she could and she will. It was supposed to be sort of a more adult version of Roger Rabbit. <laughs> but <laughs> it just it doesn't doesn't really work. I mean it wasn't it wasn't R rated or anything, but it was a little bit more I'm gonna be edgy. watching that tonight. No question. That looks <laughs> amazingly bad. <laughs> It is. It's it's pretty bad. Uh, there was a there was one odd thing, and I don't know if you guys picked up on this. There's a scene in in Space Jam when they did this this Pulp Fiction joke, yeah, where it was like Elmer Fudd and I can't remember who else. They did this, and then there was this cut, and it was it felt like they screwed something up because it looked it was this really like gnarly cut to the next scene, and it almost seems like they cut something out of it. But the editing was just so off during that that transition. I don't know if they added the Pulp Fiction thing in, like, and, and sort of squeezed it in, or if they cut something out, or if it was just bad editing. But that felt very jarring right after that scene. And I think a lot that a lot of the structure of this movie is just nothing feels quite right. I feel like it's it's really designed for kids, where it's all very 
rapidly paced and they don't really going back to, to what Mint was saying, they don't really explain a lot of how this world works. And the whole time I was just thinking Michael Jordan is the worst father and husband ever. He just disappeared. He goes missing and doesn't, he's, he doesn't seem to be concerned about his wife or kids at all throughout this movie. He just abandons them. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of, well, basically any peripheral detail about how these two worlds would coexist with each other or even just have to respond to each other because they were interacting is basically not acknowledged, which is kind of weird considering that that's all built on the fact that all the like the the real world and the Looney Tunes world are coming together. And then when they get together, it's like nobody cares. <laughs> yeah. It's like they they once they realize that it exists, they immediately accept and embrace that it exists. Like they're they're not nearly as as bowled over with shock as a person mm-hmm. should be. And I think it's interesting that the Looney Tunes world is aware of the human world, but not vice versa. They're they're there performing this show for some reason for us, for our enjoyment and entertainment, but we're not aware of their existence. But my question is, if that's the case, how do the TV channels, like, do they just... How how does that work? How's the programming work? Are they just they just assume that these are beamed in from like a studio somewhere? <laughs> There's just so many burning questions I have about this universe. I, I think it's like only next to the cars yeah. universe <laughs> does the like in terms of like implications. Like in cars, you have the Pope Mobile, which raises all these questions about wait, did they crucify a car in or <laughs> or like a, a, a cart or something? He, this is the only movie that even compares to cars in terms of trying to figure out all the implications that come from the just sheer lack of explanation for the I, film's I, events. I demand that the Ryan Coogler produced Space Jam sequel answer all of these questions. <laughs> It has to be all, all exposition. Yeah, I think that that, that you bring up a good point there, uh, Ken. Just there is a new Space Jam coming out. The fact that there is a new, and as of now, the title could change, I guess. But as of now, it's called Space Jam 2. So they're just making a straight up sequel. LeBron James is going to be starring in it and i think that they're going to do a similar thing where they bring in a lot of current nba basketball stars and i don't know what the plot is going to be but they're they're doing it it's coming out space, space jam, jam 2 are two. you kidding me i i'm excited for it cuz ryan coogler is pr- producing it and he has you know he's proven his chops with with sports movies and LeBron James was pretty good in Trainwreck, despite, you know, not liking that movie very much. I don't know. I'm maybe it's just nostalgia for this one, but I'm I'm excited for Space Jam 2. Yeah, I... uh, <laughs> I'm not holding my breath on that one. We'll see. <laughs> I mean, as long as it has Charles Barkley in it, you know, this this one had Charles Barkley. I should also mention that all of the NBA players that were in this were uh, not good at acting. 
including Michael Jordan. It was pretty painful for the most part. Yeah, that's where a lot of the more adult-oriented jokes go, like the psychiatrist asking mm-hmm. one of them if he can still perform other tasks. <laughs> oh, and yeah. just like, wow, <laughs> that was awfully written, awfully acted. <laughs> like, yeah. No child will ever understand that joke. And no adult Why will ever find it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually kind of into the NBA during this this time because this is when NBA Jam came out. I was around this time. The N- the NBA Jam games which were wildly popular and I was a big fan of the Charlotte Hornets and you had like Muggsy Bogues and Larry Johnson on on that team and they were both in this movie as well. So it was nice to see Muggsy Bogues in there and it was so th- there was a little bit of nostalgia for me as well, but I did not enjoy myself with this one. Ken, Ken, what did you think? Like, just to wrap up what overall, did you like it or no? I mean, I watching it for the first time all the way through, I recognized why it feels like such a cultural curiosity, such a cult classic. And it's not because just because it's concept is so bizarre because it came out at the right time for the people that are now old enough to shape the cultural conversation having nostalgia for it but also because of why they have nostalgia for it because it is such an uncompromised embrace of all of like the mid late 90s popular culture and all of like the ways that things were advertised and the ways that things were sort of mass distributed to people and it all collides so forcefully in the such so purposefully merchandisey multimedia product that it just kind of feels like something that was going to get in your mind at its release and then just kind of stick around there for the rest of your life, basically. I mean, there's a reason that so many people have pointed out and the reason why Warner Brothers keeps the 1996 Space Jam promotional website completely intact. Oh, yeah, I went to that. Yeah, it's <laughs> still was... there. Everybody talks about it. Everybody goes on there. They keep it up there because there's a, probably a lot of people that just like to click around it. I think it's cool that the website's still there. But... Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. But I think that just speaks to it. It's just a perfect confluence of its time and of the kind of products that, and the ways the products were being marketed. And it just came out at the right time for the right people that can shape this conversation to have nostalgia for it and so and if they were going to have nostalgia for anything of its ilk you may as well go for space jam the movie that is always the most in every respect (laughs) all right that is space jam what makes you sweat is it passion or could it just be heat What about not knowing if your very next breath will be your last? What about all three? Tomb Raider. From IDOS Interactive. 
Hey all, we're back again with another radical edition of Cheater's Corner. Did you pick up Tomb Raider for PlayStation this month and are having some trouble getting Lara through those tricky tombs? Well, you're in luck because this month I have a code to get you all the weapons in Ms. Cross's arsenal. Press select to pull up the inventory screen and hit the following. L1, triangle, R2, L2, L2, R2, circle, L1. That's it. Now get out there and steal those ancient and priceless artifacts. If there's one thing that brings families together, it's a shared love of unbridled consumerism. And there's no better way to celebrate that than our next film, the Arnold Schwarzenegger starring holiday classic released November 15th, Jingle All the Way. This Friday, from the director of Home Alone and the director of The Flintstones, the best holiday family film in years. Whoa. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sinbad. Oh, the baby. Jingle all the way. Rated PG. Starts Friday. Arnold stars as a father who vows to get his son a Turbo Man action figure for Christmas, but every store is sold out of them, so he must travel all over town and compete with everybody else in order to find one. Oh, boy. Uh, this is also a first-time watch for me. I've never seen Jingle all the way before. What about... What about you, Mint? Have you seen this movie before? No, I'd never seen it before, though uh, my roommate absolutely loves it. So we watched it together last night and (laughs) there's some nostalgia for this one, too. Uh, Ken, have you seen Jingle All the Way before? I had seen it before. I saw it a few years ago on Netflix and then I watched it again for this. And I have like so many weirdly formed half thoughts on this movie just because i can understand why it's still around as an object kind of like space jam and yet there's just so much about it that has not aged well if it was ever well first of all i'll say i I don't i don't like this movie i did not enjoy watching this movie at all but i think that it's really at the end where it really falls apart for me the the just the final act is an absolute train wreck in every regard it's just <laughs> it gets so ridiculous this movie it starts off pretty ridiculous but it gets just insane and it's so uh there there's there's something about this movie that like it, i don't know if it's supposed to be a criticism on like toxic holiday consumerism or if it's sort of embracing and celebrating it. Like I I feel like it's supposed to be a criticism, but it doesn't, it doesn't really feel that way to me because it doesn't seem like it's necessarily condemning it. It, and that's sort of what bothers me the most about this movie. Yeah. It doesn't feel like a criticism at all. I know that's how it was kind of talked up, but it definitely feels like a cover, like they'd finished the movie and then they started test screening it and they realized this movie is this insanely consumerist. And so they went, well, it's so over the top, it has to be a satire. And that was what they went with. Yeah. So Arnold plays this. He's essentially this workaholic absentee father who tries to win back his son's love by buying him an action figure on Christmas Eve, something that he was supposed to do, you know, months ago. And now he is scrambling, trying to find this action figure, literally trampling other people to get this thing. And 
I don't know if we're supposed to end up feeling sympathy for him, but I, I definitely don't. Like, I didn't feel any sympathy for him at all. I was like, this guy's an a-hole, and <laughs> I, I don't support what he's doing here, and I don't feel like this is a good way to win back your your son's love by obtaining this action Buying figure or something. Yeah, or what happens in the movie where he essentially steals the identity of the person playing Turbo Man and takes on the persona of Turbo Man in this parade in what is to be the most horrendous scene of the film when he becomes Turbo Man. Mint, what what are your thoughts? Like, I I kind of hate that I'm doing this, but I'm going to defend Jingle all the way, just like I defended Space Jam. Um, (laughs) There's there's something about Sinbad and Arnold Schwarzenegger in a movie about them suffering because they are terrible fathers that made me really happy. Like, because the whole movie does, it's not an indictment of consumerism, no, no way, but they're just such bad dads. They're so bad at, you know, fatherly responsibilities that like Arnold almost steals a turbo man toy from a neighbor's house to give to his child. Like he's such an immoral, like prick. (laughs) And yet, and, and he just keeps suffering and things keep going poorly. And then the finale I don't know, Sinbad showing up as the, the, the villain to Turbo Man, like, with no explanation as to how he got the suit for it? Yeah, yeah if if Larger Than Life was existentialist, then this movie is just straight-up nihilist. It's just about how you can do whatever you want to get your kid the dumb little toy, but he's still gonna hate you, and you're still a terrible father, and that's just how it is. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That is... That is so... Anyway, buy stuff. It's Christmas. Yep. Larger than life is existentialist. Space Jam is absurdist, and this is nihilist. We, we seem to have a theme going in our family movies. I'm we, liking we, this. We, we need to start thinking about what uh, 101 Dalmatians is now. <laughs> yeah. I I like how throughout the movie he's he's making all these promises that he clearly can't keep. He's he's lying to his family. He lies to his wife and says that he got the the toy and he didn't. And then he's like making all these promises about attending his kids uh, things and and all of this stuff. And then at the end, he's like, it's time I start keeping my promises. And it's like, oh, really? This is what (laughs) this is what you learned from this whole scenario. Maybe I should maybe I should keep the promises that I make to my family. A novel idea. It's just so so ridiculous. And I don't know if you guys noticed, I actually had to rewind this. This is a little thing. There's a scene at the end during the whole Turbo Man thing when the guy who, I can't remember his name, he plays Booger on the Revenge of the Nerds movies. He's he's like the, the in the pink uh, monster suit and he gets knocked off the float and these kids start beating him up for some reason because I guess he's a a bad guy in the Turbo Man universe. insanely violent. <laughs> and they, there's one kid who says, we don't like you, and then says the F word. And I don't know if you guys noticed that. No, not at all. I or did not. not catch that. I was, yeah. I was just, that entire scene, I did not process any dialogue. I was just staring slack-jawed the entire time and just <laughs> pure, um, 
somewhere between shock and resignation. It was so ridiculous. It was like I we I, wa- I was watching this with my wife, and we it the scene happened, and she goes, "Did that kid just call him an f word?" And I was like, "Well, I heard it too." And so we went back. We 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 uh, rewound it, turned up the volume, and sure enough, f f bomb drop. <laughs> and are you? I sh- guess I'm a hundred percent sure. Uh, it's it does not appear to be in the ultimate arbiter of all moral morality in a film, the IMDb Parents Guide. <laughs> uh, I'm telling you, watch watch the scene. I'm not watching again. this movie again. Just watch that one scene. I'm not watching this Bo- one scene again. <laughs> <laughs> Booger gets knocked off the float, and a kid calls him a a blank. And it so mm. we can say that Jingle All the Way is homophobic. And it, it, so then we have Phil Hartman as the absolutely perfect neighbor who is hitting on and getting with all of the women in the neighborhood. So then there's this subplot happening with that and uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's wife being hit on by Phil Hartman. There's... Seems very odd. Like he's good, but that character is so upsetting. <laughs> yeah, he's that is such an uncomfortable character. Yeah, Vern Troyer's in this. He plays a Santa, mm-hmm. which is odd that they would choose him as being Santa, Wait, for... not an elf. But yeah, they. But of course, they they do. They they have all sorts of insensitive content. Wait, Vern Troyer well. is. I thought he was an elf, and Jim Belushi was the Santa. A Jim, no, Jim Belushi. Well, yeah, Jim Belushi is a Santa, but the scene when they go to like the Santa, the like underground Santa black market scene, Vern Troyer is one of the Santas in that. Oh, okay. That's <laughs> this movie's such a mess. I completely forgot about because that that seems like so out of left field, and yeah, no one makes reference to it again afterwards. And of course, Arnold in, impersonated a cop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> Which it's like, how does oh this movie doesn't make any sense? It's it's pretty rough. This is a pretty pretty rough movie, and it it hurts me when I see TV channels that do their standard Christmas playlist. You have your Christmas stories and Elf now, and then this is inevitably included and i'm just like why can't we just let's put this one let's bury this one let's put this one to rest there is this does not need to be a holiday classic no no. this movie is an insane like nihilist vaguely like racist at times discriminatory disaster that is so obviously like hyper consumerist and then in a bizarre last ditch effort to save itself tries to brand itself as a satire yeah and it's funny. I like I like it when Arnold does comedy. You know, I was a big fan of Kindergarten Cop and some of his other comedic roles. I think that he handles comedy very well, but this movie just did not did not work for him at all. Agreed. Do you have any other thoughts on Jingle All the Way? If you like watching suffering, <laughs> That's my that's my defense. Arnold <laughs> suffers for almost two hours. I will also throw in uh, 
I I had rented like the the Blu-ray from Netflix to 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 watch this on uh and the first scene of this movie I think it was it's a sign for how much how like needlessly overpacked this entire movie is. Uh the first scene is like a clip from like the Turbo Man TV show and on the Blu-ray it uses all of the sound like channels. Like there's it's n- so loud. The first scene of like the TV show is so loud. It's like it's yeah, and then you realize it's that's the rest of the movie. It's very loud for no reason. <laughs> it is a Yes, it is that that's a great way to describe Jingle All the Way. Loud for no mm-hmm. reason. Yeah, look. Because that's that's what it is. Like the scene at the beginning when he goes to the toy store and they some somebody had the bright idea to hand out the like super <laughs> balls to for people to get the action figure. Come on. Who thought that was a good idea? And then, then, you know, Arnold's in a ball pit wrestling with a child to get the Super Bowl. And 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 when Arnold makes the decision to go after that one Super Bowl, there's like six on the ground next to him. It doesn't. They're everywhere. Yeah, they're (laughs) everywhere. There's hundreds of them everywhere. And he picks the one that he needs. Yeah, let's just acknowledge this movie is does not make any sense is more than a tad misguided and just let it just 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 let it fade away i i wish it would fade away it i don't think it will probably not unfortunately i think we'll keep seeing jingle all the way popping up for a long time gonna keep jingling Mm -hmm. november also saw the unfortunate end of two beloved children's cartoon shows the first of which took the world by storm when it premiered in 1987 giving kids everywhere turtle power. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles began as a comic book by Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird uh, in 1984, but it didn't become a cultural phenomenon until the then small toy maker called Playmates licensed the property and created a cartoon tie-in with the figures. The original series ran in syndication until 1990, then on CBS until its final episode November 2nd. In total, the show aired 193 episodes and remains a successful property today, with multiple new series, toys, and movies still being released. Were you guys fans of the Turtles growing up? Since you're your later generation meant you were born when this show was ending. Yeah. And Ken, you weren't born until three years later. Yeah. Were you guys, did you guys grow up with the Turtles? Not really. Like, my first experience of the Turtles was... I think there was, like, a Super Nintendo game that I remember seeing when I was younger, but that... It wasn't until that animated TMNT movie came out in, like, 2007 that I really got my first taste of Turtle Power. Yeah, I kind I kind of missed the Turtle thing altogether. I mean, I knew what it was, uh, just because it was such a cultural phenomenon, as we said in the intro. Uh, but I always was... If nothing else, really, really happy that there was just a mass object of pop culture that was just called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which is a great title. Yeah, back when Eastman and Laird were first coming up with this, it's famously they were like out at a bar or at a restaurant and they were trying to come up with ideas and they were like, let's just come up with the most ridiculous thing we can and see what happens. (laughs) And this is this is what came of it. And as we all know, it, it exploded and just it became this 
huge, massive success. I was really, really into the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as a as a kid, and the I loved the cartoon. I think the cartoon is probably where I first got my introduction to it, and then the action figures were a big part of it as well. They sort of go hand in hand, and I think the action figures came first, actually, and then the cartoon was like very shortly after. And I was like, so, so into it. I ha- I still have like all of my original action figures, which hopefully are worth some money <laughs> at, at this point. But I was in like the TMNT fan club and they sent me like a bandana and I would wear the bandana <laughs> and they, there was like a Broadway show. There was, they went on tour. They released several music albums it was just a huge, huge thing. And by 96, though, I was, I was not into it anymore. As I said, I was 12 by this point, and I hadn't watched the show in, in many years. And the show was on for like 10 years. So this was... So I, did, you, did you guys watch the, the final episode? Sure did. Yep. Uh, so when CBS picked it up, so it it was in syndication, as we said, and CBS then picked it up and it had like the sole rights to, to air it. And when they did, when they picked it up, they sort of made it more edgy. You'll notice in the later episodes, they changed the intro music. So it wasn't sort of that classic intro music. They made it this horrible sort of metal rock music that was awful. And they made it a little bit more in line with the movies, which were really popular. The, the movies were a little bit darker and grittier than, than the original cartoon. It was still a Saturday morning friendly, though. And I got to say, uh, re-watching this final episode, I feel like the, the show went out with a, a whimper rather than a bang. Because going back and watching it was not, not very enjoyable for me. I just don't know what was happening. Like, it felt like I was watching, well, the last episode of a TV show I'd never seen another episode of. It's so, there's so much going on and there's no exposition, which, you know, normally I'm okay with, but I needed something (laughs) to get me through because this was just so much, (laughs) so many alien characters that did not have any connection to anything I was familiar with. I think what probably happened during this time, I think the popularity of the turtles was waning and they were just flooding the market with as many f- toys as they could. And they were, so they were introducing all of these different characters into the show so that they could justify making more toys. The, the lineup of turtles action figures was absolutely insane. I mean, there were just probably hundreds of characters and vehicles and everything that you could buy and by 96 you know shredder is famously their their arch nemesis he was gone i don't know what happened to him and they had some new alien nemesis that they were dealing with and he wasn't as cool as shredder but yeah there were a lot of aliens and a lot of things going on in this it didn't feel like a finale though to me no, it, 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 there's very little about it except for maybe 
you know, stray scenes here and there that indicate that there's that there's anything final about this, which I suppose is a valid way to do a finale, just to keep all of the characters in place and whatnot. Uh, but yeah, I can now say that I've seen an episode of the show, but there wasn't really much for me to latch onto. But at the very least, I know all the names of the characters and whatnot just because it is so well known yeah i think if i went back and watched the original episodes that i watched as a kid i think i would feel the same way like oh boy why did i like this so much it's just it's too set it's too much of a kid's show for me to like it as an adult like some some stuff i can go back and watch now and still enjoy, but this I'm I'm not sure. I can I can go back and watch the movies, the live action movies, and I still enjoy those for the most part. But a little disappointing going back as a big turtle fan. While Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles may have saturated the market and ended with a fizzle rather than a bang, the next show we'll be discussing tore through '90s kids shows like a comet, igniting controversy while entertaining both children and adults alike with its gross-out humor and adult themes. Rocco's Modern Life was the first addition to the original Nicktoons lineup, comprised of Doug, Rugrats, and The Ren and Stimpy Show, and was created by Joe Murray. The first show aired on September 18, 1993, and ran for four seasons till its cancellation on November 24, 1996. This is another example of a thing that I knew of but knew nothing about just because it predated me by enough that I never had to directly encounter with it but and it doesn't seem to have the same anything near approaching the same ongoing uh power that Ninja Turtles does so all I really knew going in was the title Rocco's Modern Life so tell me a little bit about your history with it I guess I loved Rocco's Modern Life growing up so like we said in the intro the the nicktoons were released and i i pretty much loved all of the nicktoons growing up especially ren and stimpy that was like my big that was my jam i love the ren and stimpy show because it, it felt like a show that i shouldn't be watching as a kid it was it was on nickelodeon it was by all intents and purposes family friendly but it did not feel that way it was just there was nothing like it and i so i loved ren and stimpy but that that sort of ended and rocco's modern life felt like the next iteration of that it was sort of picking up where ren and stimpy left off where you have these i loved the animation style and it was like just it was perfect for a a young kid who a young boy who was like into that like who thought fart jokes were funny and stuff like that it's a very gross show but it deals with a lot of sort of mature topics that i think probably just went over most kids heads and it did uh draw controversy for that and i think that that's one of the reasons that to this day the show still at least to me the show holds up i can watch it now and still enjoy it what about you, Mint? Did you have you had any experience with Rocco's Modern Life, and what did you think of 
going back now and revisiting so when, it. So when um, you first mentioned that we are going to watch one episode of this, uh, I thought you were talking about Ren and Stimpy. Like, that's how little I knew about Rocco. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It, it felt very similar to that final episode of Ninja Turtles where I was watching, and it was funny. There was some good stuff in it. Um, it just it felt so far removed from what I understood Nicktoons to be. Cause I never really saw Ren and Stimpy either. I was Doug and Rugrats. Um, Cause those were still in syndication um, on like family network channels when I was growing up. And like, it just, it felt so far removed from anything else I'd ever seen in animated form. Aside from like maybe Big Mouth right now, like it's, that's a show that also goes to those darker places with gross out humor and adult themes. But yeah, Rocco, I, I but I want to watch more of it. Like that's, I think that's the big takeaway is that it's so bizarre and so funny that like you just feel one episode is not enough. The way that it ended was a little, was a little odd. There was a Thanksgiving episode that was like the, the last episode that aired, but there was an episode before that, called future schlock that was sort of the end of the series where the the whole the the main crew ended up going into space and that was sort of the the end the finale of the show ken what did you think overall just going off what you're saying what i think is interesting is that there's such a a mood and kind of a vibe within the show that you could air an episode about the characters like going into space and then air another episode after that, you know, out of order. And it still kind of works. There is something attractive about the entire feel of the show. And like men, I think, I think I could watch more of this. I think it's a great show. I think it's a show that, like I said, holds up uh, over time and I'm really excited for it to come back there. They did announce that there is a, a movie that's going to be coming out supposedly this year from the last bit I heard, there's rumors that it's going to be on streaming services. It's going to be on Netflix. That was the last rumor that hasn't been confirmed yet, but they did release like a two and a half minute clip of the show. And it looks like it is very much the same art style. They got the whole cast to come back. The original cast Joe, Joe Murray's back uh, working on it. So it looks like it is going to be a proper like reboot and it is going to take place right after future schlock where they're up in space for like 20 years or whatever. And they come down and it's 2018 and they're just trying to assimilate to the new modern life. Mm -hmm. And I, kind of like that idea although although watching future schlock it doesn't really make sense because the t the time is a little out of whack in that because it takes place that episode takes place 17 years later right mm -hmm. so so it'd, it'd be, be like 17 years after 96 would be 2013 so in like another like 20 years after that would be 2033 yeah but the 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 show is going to be about them going into space in 2000 or in 1996 and coming back. So yeah, there's, it doesn't, Whatever. yeah, it's not a big deal. One thing that I did like, and what kind of makes me want to watch more of this is 
just its ability to actually successfully uh, critique aspects and work as a, of society and work as a satire. Like the second half of the Thanksgiving episode, the one about like arguments about who really whose like ancestors really founded the town. Oh yeah. Feels more successfully like satirical of sort of the American ideals and mythos than anything in jingle all the way pretends that it is. So even on those (laughs) merits, it's a better piece of satire than an entire movie we just talked about. I think that's the, the great thing about that show. And one thing that sets it apart from Ren and Stimpy, like if you go back and watch Ren and Stimpy, that's a show that also I think holds up and it that's a show that also has a lot of adult humor, but not, not that sort of biting satire that there might be a little bit of that. And it's been many years since I've watched Ren and Stimpy, but that show is, I think it's just as good, but for different reasons. I don't know why it was canceled after four seasons. It's, upsetting to me especially because like rugrats lasted for forever that show was on for like a decade it was on for so long and i heard that they're i think they're bringing rugrats back too they're like bringing all of these shows back it's like we're hitting some we're in some like super concentrated and just ultra focused period where we're not only alluding to things that we're nostalgic for it's just like going back and then selling it to us again it's like nostalgia plus because we're actually rebooting all of these and turning them into new items uh i remember reading this i think it was like the slant magazine review of greece which is this like complete takedown of what greece kind of represents because it's a 70s movie that's nostalgic for the 50s so it enters this idea of taking your memories selling them back to you as these uh, idealized consumer products and kind of setting off this whole thing where it became increasingly okay and increasingly fashionable to just obviously play to your nostalgia. uh, But worse than that, just like a fictionalized version of your nostalgia. And it feels like now we're kind of in a period where with everything getting rebooted and trying to apply to the current moment, it's like, an even more exaggerated version of that. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it can work. And there are cases where it could work. Sometimes it's not going to work, but that's completely irrelevant to whether or not it's going to keep happening. It's very interesting time we're living in. Mm -hmm. I I don't know. I don't know if it's good or bad, right? Like I think it's, it's bad that we're seeing fewer new and original ideas, but also if, you can reboot uh, a dormant franchise and make something new and wonderful out of it. What's, what's the big deal? You know, like uh, Halloween came out and Mm -hmm. it's, I feel a good, it's a good reboot slash sequel. It revitalized the franchise. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that, you know, the, the Rocco's Modern Life, the movie's been delayed multiple times. It's it's done from what I understand. Like it's it's ready to go, but there's something going on with the distribution of it. Like it was originally going to be on Nickelodeon, but now they're saying that it could be released on Netflix. And what I'm wondering is if they're working out a deal to like bring the show back proper. Hmm. And because there's been a lot of 
you know, when they first released that footage, there was a lot of buzz around it. So I'm hoping that it the reason that it's been delayed is because they're actually working on a new series. Perhaps. And I think that that, that would be that would be great. Yeah, I would like that because just from the episodes that I saw in preparation for the show, there is really something about this that interests me and I thought was very clever and enjoyable. And so I'd be very happy to see uh, like a full scale wave of interest coming back for Rocco's modern life. Now, if only they could bring back the adventures of Pete and Pete, that would be, yeah, yeah, I'd be, I'd be extremely we need, happy. We need to keep talking about the adventures of Pete and Pete on the show. And we will trust me. If you want to see Rocco's modern life, by the way, they have it on the streaming service Verve VRV. Uh, they, there's the Nick Splat channel on there and you can see, I don't think it's the whole series, but they have like maybe seasons two, three, and four or something like that. I'm not sure if it's the whole thing, but there's a lot of episodes that you can watch on Verve. It's morning. You're feeling great. You're in a hurry. You're hungry. It's Little Debbie to the rescue with a lot of great tasting breakfast goodies. Just a few more reasons. Little Debbie is America's number one snack cake. Our last film this month was adapted from a Walt Disney animated film. This might be a common practice now, but back in 1996, this had only been done once before. Directed by Stephen Herrick and released on November 27th, this is 101 Dalmatians. 101 Dalmatians are missing. Dog nothing. It's a dreadful thing. Now, here. it's time to call in the specialist. Walt Disney Pictures presents a whole new breed of adventure. Glenn Close, 101 Dalmatians. Rated T, now playing at a theater near you. An evil high fashion designer plots to steal Dalmatian puppies in order to make an extravagant fur coat, but instead creates an extravagant mess. Hmm. <laughs> oh. Oh, oh, oh. This is, I think, pretty clear cut a case of a, of a complete Oscar nomination snub. For Glenn Close. Where was her Oscar nomination? Yeah. Her performance is a masterpiece. Yeah, she was fantastic in this. I mean, back when this came out, she was getting a lot of praise, but definitely, definitely got the snub. Yeah, she was nominated for the Globe, but lost to, of all people, Madonna for Evita, which I think is funny. God, that movie was... So, so big back then. So, Ken, from what you're saying, this was the first time you watched this uh, the, the whole way through? I believe so. I remember I th- remember seeing at least the beginning of it in school, at least at some point, I think. At some point in grade school, I remember seeing the beginning of this movie, but I can't remember seeing the rest of it. And even from what I saw, I can't really remember it all that much. So this was my first time seeing it all the way through. I thought it was fine. Nothing quite reaches those sort of giddy, ecstatic heights of Glenn Close's performance, but there's nothing in here that's like truly bad or misguided. I kind of had fun with it. Yeah. Uh, Mint, what about you? Have you seen this before or is this a first time watch? So I, I might have seen it when I was really young. 
I can't I can't be sure because I know that I saw 102 Dalmatians, the sequel in theaters when I was six, because I re- Glenn Close was too scary for me. And I ran out of the theater crying. Um, my vivid <laughs> oh. memory of my first theater experience, though I'm sure I'd been to something before that. That's the first memory. Um, but I don't know if I've ever seen this all the way through. And I also, I had a fun time with it, partially because of Glenn Close, partially because of um, Hugh Laurie and uh, what was the other guy who played Horace? Mark Williams, who uh, is Mr. Weasley in the Harry Potter films, they are so funny together as Jasper and Horace. And the other thing that I, I wonder if the pitch meeting for this movie was Home Alone, but with puppies. Yeah, it absolutely had that that Chris Columbus vibe mm-hmm. to it. I think that it, it was very reminiscent of the Home Alone movies. I think that's just how kids movies were back then lots of adults having horrible violent things happen to them for for laughs well and that, now that, that i that was just a trend now that i see it this was written by john hughes who also wrote mm-hmm. home alone yep so yep there you have it double dipping <laughs> it is it is home alone with mm-hmm. puppies i i enjoyed this movie as well i saw it as a kid my dad was a huge fan of 101 Dalmatians, the the original animated series. So I grew up watching that, and I was a huge fan of of that one. So when this one came out, he was really excited to go see it. And I, I guess I was, too. I don't really remember my excitement level back then with it, but I remember going to the theater and seeing it and, and enjoying it and re-watching it now. I still... I still thought it was okay. I I think it's interesting to look at this, which is one of the first, you know, Disney adaptations of one of their animated films and sort of compare this with one of their newer ones and just see how different they are, like tonally and aesthetically. And they're just so wildly different to me. Definitely. And I don't know which one is better but there's there's a clear shift in the style of their live action movies these days i'm gonna go out on a branch here and say that the 90s remakes are better than the like the only one from the past 10 years that i even liked was uh pete's dragon um which no one saw but i thought was you know actually an interesting reboot of of or remake of that property whereas this this is just it's got some of the same stuff going on from the the animated film but it does feel like its own distinct entity largely because of glenn close just being whatever the heck she is in this movie Mm -hmm. yeah there's something about (laughs) this this kind of remake that feels like yes it's a cash grab obviously but it it works and it's funny and it's like, it's, it's a good family film. Whereas like the beauty and the beast remake, the Cinderella remake, like they just feel so forced and inorganic. Whereas this one, like I even see some real chemistry between Jack Daniels and um, whoever plays Anita, um, Jolie Richardson. Like there was actual chemistry between them as like a couple that, only gets together because their dogs are, you know, horny. Uh, yeah, I thought that it was a pretty good 
adaptation, there were a lot of callbacks to the animated film. And I thought like just the, the look of it, you know, that kind of dreary, cold London look, I thought that they captured it pretty nicely. The thing about the, the animated film is that you have these characters that are seemingly pulled right from like fashion designs, you know, like the, if you remember the animated film, they, all the characters were very lanky and slender and it, it was almost as if they were using those fashion designs as inspiration for the animation style. And that, uh, didn't quite translate over to this, but I almost think like it would have been a better idea for them to have this be more of a period piece and have it set, you know, back whenever the, the original one, like the sixties or whenever the original one was, was set. Cause you have like Jeff Daniels who in, in the original movie, uh, his character, Roger was a musician, I believe. And in this, he's a video game designer and <laughs> that doesn't necessarily, I, I don't know if that really holds up. That feels a little <laughs> silly, but I kind of, I still kind of like what they did with that. I will say in its defense, at the very least, trying to adapt it to a contemporary setting does make it feel less like a cash in on an older title and more of an attempt to create its own thing for a then current world. Like, I think the main problem I had with the Beauty and the Beast remake, which if which I did not even get through, was that it instantly from the word go feels meaningless. It feels like there's no attempt mm. to justify its existence. Whereas this one, it's like we're not only changing it from animation to live action, we're also updating the setting a little bit. And I think that they did a good job that, you know, this is an era before CG completely took over. I think if you were to make this movie now, all the dogs would just be CG. And I think that it was a, a good choice. You know, there's, obviously some CG in there specifically like when they're coming down the, the rain spout and stuff like that, but using actual dogs and puppies in this, I think was a very good choice. And also they don't talk in this, which is a big thing. The dogs, they don't talk. They're just dogs. And that was also, I think a, a really good choice for the time. Yeah. Uh, I think that's pretty much it. I'd say it's a, uh, I don't know, a light recommend for me. It was it was okay. Pretty inoffensive. Lots of adults having terrible things happen to them for uh the enjoyment of children. Yep. I uh, it's it's a it's it's a strong recommend for me. Like Christmas season is coming up and I will probably be watching this again in a couple of months because it's it's a very cozy movie. It it really it really worked for me. Strong recommendation for Glenn Close. And all of the puppies. That's it. The thing about Cruella DeVille that can't be underscored enough is the fact that she wants to slaughter these puppies mm -hmm. for their fur. She she literally wants to murder all of these puppies. It's terrifying. And it's it's just such an odd thing to make a family film out of. Mm -hmm. Where she wants to mercilessly skin these animals were their fur. Yeah. I don't know. I don't it's, know if I'd, no, no, I'd it's that. terrifying. I don't, I don't know if they'd make something like that 
I probably not, and I and I can't blame them because yeah, it's no, there, there's nothing good about that idea. Like, <laughs> it's so weird that it works that like they that this entire concept works, and that the character is not immediately just completely impermissible for a children's franchise. Uh, but somehow, the thing that always bums me out when a new Dalmatians movie comes out is that you always see a, uh, an uptick in people buying Dalmatian dogs, like for their kids and stuff. And then they end up in the pound because people don't realize that, you know, Dalmatians are, are animals and need to be taken care of. And Dalmatians are actually very temperamental dogs and they require a lot of care and energy, uh, you know, space to expend energy. Well, yeah, because they're all afraid of Corella Deville coming along and like slaughtering <laughs> them for their fur. I I would be temperamental too. In in them for they they all believe that that's a true story that happens. So they're all on edge all the time. Mm-hmm. So you always mm-hmm. see like the a dog uh, more Dalmatians in the pound because of a Dalmatians movie, which I think is always mm-hmm. sad. Yeah, like that that was one of the and I'm reading now, that was one of the like main objections to the uh uh to the film by animal rights groups when it was released in ninety six is that they yeah. knew that it was going to happen. All right. I think that's gonna do it for this month. I wanna thank Mint Marcellus for joining us. Be sure to DM us your nineties memories on Twitter at nineties pod or send us an email at nineties at filmpulse.net. And if you could, please give us a review on iTunes. It it helps us out a lot, and we appreciate it greatly. Until next month, for Ken Bakley, my name's Adam Patterson, and this has been Saved by the 90s. Bye, everyone. So long.